Stephen Vincent Buscemi was born on December 13, 1957, in Brooklyn, New York, to John and Dorothy Buscemi. While his interest in acting developed in his high school years, even afterwards studying at the legendary Lee Strasberg Institute, he spent the early 1980s as a New York City fireman, a job he returned to after the 9-11 World Trade Center attacks, before starting his feature film acting career with 1985's The Way It Is. On How Do You Do, Fellow Kids, we're going to look at every single film Steve Buscemi has ever been involved in, both as an actor and in director, in no particular order. I'm Doug Tilley, and with me as usual is Liam O'Donnell, and today we're going to talk about Buscemi's feature directing debut, 1996's Trees Lounge. How you doing there, Liam? I'm pretty good, Doug. How are you? Liam, we got to get right to a central issue, because this movie, which we'll talk about in some detail after our first break, this movie is about a guy who likes to drink. Now, you are notoriously a straight edger, <laughs> uh, and so it must be a real problem. Do you ever, when you're watching people partake in these things that you have denied yourself, uh, do you ever feel like a tinge of jealousy, or on the other side of that, do you ever condemn them in your mind? Oh, I mean, just the thought of anyone consuming the devil's brew <laughs> fills me with unbridled rage, and I just think about the various ways I could murder them and get get some sort of recompense for their sins. No, um, I so, <clears throat> I mean, we'll get into this more when we talk about the movie. There is mm-hmm. there is something about, uh, there is something about the ways that alcohol fuels both melancholy and lethargy. That hmm. when I first saw this film, I actually um, didn't find just depressing, though it is depressing. Uh, I also was a little <laughs> bit jealous because yeah, uh, I mean, so- you are a pretty sad and lazy person, yeah. so I can see. How. <laughs> yeah, no, I mean, in the sense that, like, in the sense that, like, um, there's a part of me that wants to implode. Uh, well, again, I don't want to give away too much about this film, but there's a part sure. of me that wants to implode the way that our main character implodes. There's a part of me that wants to just like, be like, Oh my God. You know, and just, and just have a reason for that. And I think that, um, alcohol would give me that at least for a little while, that sort of excuse that he gets in this, in this film, that, that ability to like, just sort of wash it all away. Um, I want to investigate your, your wish or need to implode at some other point. <laughs> well, I think it's different now because I'm, you know, married and and I have a, a child. But there it's was even stronger now, probably. No, there was a time in my life oh, where I really sorry. thought it was just going to be me, just in an apartment, hoping I could pay the rent, looking at things on the, the needle internet. and the damage done, right? The needle and the damage done. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Ugh. <laughs> Uh, no, no, no. We're here, I, I, we're do, I do think. Oh, you still want to talk about there, this? Okay. There is a there is a point to which, though, uh, this there's the <laughs> part of the dream in this film is a, of a social life that isn't real, right? But that idea that you could just go to this place and be social is something I think sometimes straight edge kids in the past did sort of wish for because they didn't feel welcome. Mm. But you know, I'm 40 years old. There's not a room unless. Unless it's based upon class, there's not a room in this world that I don't think I could go hang out in. You know what I mean? It's only when you're 
22 and straight edge and you think, well, I couldn't go possibly go into a bar and order a soda. That would be terrible. You know, and only now it's like <laughs> they don't care about that. In fact, a lot of places they'll give you the soda for free. It's pretty nice. That does sound kind of nice. Well, we'll get back to that when we talk about the movie. But we're here, Liam, to talk about the great actor and director, Steve Buscemi. Um, and it's, you know what's nice? And uh, we're pulling back the curtains a little bit here. Is um, We did a show, Liam, you might remember, called Eric Roberts is the Fucking Man, which was about the life and work of actor Eric I've, Roberts. I've never, I've never heard of it. I've never heard of it. Okay. Well, I mean, you might want to check basically every piece of social media you've been involved in over the past seven years or so. I don't know what you're talking but we, about. We, we did this podcast together. And while I'm, look, I'm not walking back my love for Eric Roberts, we had a lot of fun doing that show. But one of the difficulties of it was that a lot of the movies that we watched, we would have to enjoy with reservations. But one of the nice things about looking at Steve Buscemi's kind of oeuvre, his whole career, is that he's been a very consistent presence in a lot of really great movies. And that's kind of exciting here right at the beginning. You know, it's funny. I'm saying this now. You just watch like four years down the line. I'll be like, I never want to watch a fucking Steve Buscemi movie again. Oh, sure, <laughs> sure. And I, and I don't want to romanticize it because everybody has to work, right? And sure. That was our thing with Eric that, <laughs> that, you know, he's just trying to work. Now, Steve, I think in some ways has been a little luckier as a character mm. actor than maybe some other character actors. But there's no way, there is no human way that there won't be films that we're going to watch in this in this particular iteration of our podcast and not be like, oh, God, what the heck, you know? I think, yeah, I mean, that's uh, incredibly fair. Though I will say that I think that those movies, when we encounter them, generally, uh, except maybe at the very beginning of his acting career, they're going to be of a slightly higher production value than some of the movies we ended up watching on the Eric Roberts podcast. That's probably fair. Probably fair. That's what I'm saying, Liam. But Liam, this comes to now a question that I think everybody listening to this podcast right now has. The question that's not, why are you doing a podcast about Steve Buscemi? The question is, what is the appeal of this actor? Uh, now, I want to make something uh, very clear right from the start, which is that, yes, Steve Buscemi has a very distinctive look. Um, I was reading a, a review for the very movie that we're going to talk about today from Roger Ebert, and he mentioned how critics love to describe Steve Buscemi's face in their reviews. And that's, <laughs> it must be really awful being a character actor sometimes where people are just like, like they just rev up to just let loose on describing you in the most horrific way possible. But I do want to think about it on kind of a wider level. Why do we like to look at Steve Buscemi, Liam? I don't know. I don't, I mean, don't be wrong. He does have a unique look, you know, his eyes, his teeth, the way he sort of expresses himself. Uh, I don't think it's just his look, though. It's also the way he talks. It's also um, the way he carries himself, the mm -hmm. way he can sometimes give off like the most mm, sympathetic of character traits, but then also the most jerky, awful. You know what I mean? Like he is absolutely he's believably both the monster and the, the person you're sad for. And, and, and I think that's a little bit rare, actually. I don't think that. Everyone can kind of nail that variety, uh, per se. However, um, I do think people make too much of the look. Like, I get it that for an actor who has been in as many films with as many serious roles as he has, he looks unique. But compared to everyday humans, he doesn't actually look that different. 
you know, I see weirder people every day. So like <laughs> I get I see weirder people in the mirror every day. <laughs> but you know what I'm saying? Like the, the idea that we're all so amazed that this man is able to get an acting job is just it's gotten to the I think when I was younger, I thought it was kind of fun and funny, like, aha, Steve Buscemi. And now that I'm a full on adult, I'm like, what is wrong with everyone? What is wrong with y'all that you care this much about this? It's interesting because in this movie, again, we'll talk about it in more detail when we get to it, but there is a suggestion that if not attractive, that he at least has some sort of charisma uh, that that people are, are drawn to him, that he's had relationships with attractive women. And when we're presented with that, our reaction isn't like, yeah, whatever, uh, weird goggle-eyed man. No, I mean, he is a... Uh, <laughs> believe me, this podcast isn't going to be about, hey, let's justify the attractiveness of Steve Buscemi. But what I mean is, it's exactly what you were saying a moment ago. He can play these kind of weaselly, unlikable characters, but he has a charisma about him that's very attractive. I I think he actually, and that's one of the interesting things about this movie, is that sometimes he can also imbue some of his worst characters with a certain mm-hmm. amount of dignity as well. You know, And so <laughs> this character is flawed in many ways but there's also things about him that you like you just can't help it you just you just like things about him um uh i i think we'll find that 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 they don't win the day per se but uh but i think that's part of his sort of strength as an actor now liam when was the first time maybe not the first time that you uh encountered steve buscemi in a film but the first time that you were aware that you were watching a specific Steve Buscemi performance that's difficult to say because I feel like he yeah me too I feel like I was aware of him this this is probably not even a fair association but in my brain because of Reservoir Dogs and other films that were coming out at that time I just associate him with Eric Stoltz and other uh, you know Gary Oldman and (laughs) a, a bunch of people who were kind of like uh, trying to make it in the early '90s, in a sense, you know, sure. you recognize them, but they weren't getting like huge roles yet, um, or maybe ever. But, um, but this, so that's sort of how I think of him. But I don't remember. I don't think I saw. I uh, I want to say certainly, but I might be wrong. I, I'm going to say certainly. Certainly, I didn't see Reservoir Dogs first. I don't think that's true. Um. But I don't know if I would remember him from Pulp Fiction. It's such a short role. You know what I mean? Right. Of course. Um, I'm not trying to waste time. I'm just being tr- no, no. It's okay. I'm being truly honest. I think my first thoughts of him were a combo of Tarantino and then the Coens. You know, it, it was right. the Reservoir Dogs Pulp Fiction connection, and then it was Fargo and whatever else for the Coens. And then honestly, I, I. I know we're going to get to probably a few of these movies, but um, there were a number of films post Pulp Fiction that just wanted to be Tarantino. Oh, no kidding. And he, and he did, he did his fair share of those. Um, yep. And I'm sure that was a great get for those directors. And I, and I don't hate all those movies, but, uh, but I just remember a time where even though I was too young to know that they weren't great films, I still was already getting tired of them. Like there was just a moment where I thought, uh, this is another thing that wants to be Pulp Fiction. And I'm like 19. You know what I mean? It's not like I have <laughs> big film insights at this point in my life. But I've just seen so many. I'm like, God, does every movie want to be Pulp Fiction? Like, what's happening? It's, it's amazing to think. Like, I was just looking at his filmography. And Things to Do in Denver When You're Dead came out in 1995, the year after Pulp Fiction. But I remember sitting 
in my house and watching that movie in like 95 or 96 and thinking of thinking just like I don't really I'm I'm done with movies like this. I'm already burned out and it was like a year. That's all it took. It they were just so it was just such a and to be fair, we're saying movies like Pulp Fiction. I bet it's probably more accurate to say movies like Reservoir Dogs. Hmm. I it's funny because you're right. Post Pulp Fiction, it I felt like there were more Reservoir Dogs imitators than there were Pulp Fiction imitators. Yeah, but but in my brain at the time it just all became Everybody wants to be Tarantino. And what's funny is I actually think that's partly why – and not that I know Tarantino I can predict. But I kind of wonder if that's why the follow of the Pulp Fiction is Jackie Brown in the sense right. that like he's actually distinguishing himself from his own imitators with that film. That he's actually yeah. sort of um, – uh, you know, not in a radical, radical way. It's still very much a Tarantino film, but it, it feels like, oh, everyone can play the song. Well, then I'm going to play something a little bit different. You know, I'm going to go. Which I mean, I guess is uh, whatever you think of Tarantino as a director. I happen to like him quite a bit, but I mean, I recognize his flaws and his limitations. But I mean, that is the mark of a real creative person, right? Which is that he doesn't want to keep playing that same song. He wants to try something different, but what I mean, it is notable that that Jackie that uh, Jackie Brown is not a movie that even tonally has been imitated very well afterwards. Even though there have been a lot of Elmore Leonard um, uh, adaptations since then, I don't know. I would actually say that even the Elmore Leonard adaptations I've seen are not trying to ape what makes Jackie Brown unique. You know Absolutely, one hundred percent. Sort of leaving that alone. Um, looking at his filmography, I actually got to say. Uh, uh, I I definitely remember him from Hudsucker Proxy, and then um the big thing that I think probably in you know sort of in um injected him into a lot of brains of people our age was Airheads, 1994's Air, yeah. Airheads. That mm-hmm. that that movie, I mean obviously the star of that movie is Brendan Fraser. Like I'm not making a case otherwise, but sure. But his performance in that film set him apart for people for whom they weren't normally noticing people in movies who weren't hot you know what i mean like he's memorable even though he's not the sexy lead of the film my first encounter with steve buscemi um it's it's kind of strange because it's going to sound like i'm uh that this is like the easiest way to go but what it was is that i was 13 years old and i went to this party with people who were a lot older than me and this party had uh, a group of people sitting down and watching a movie and they're like everyone was talking about this movie's really cool we really love this movie and i'd never heard of it before uh at that time i definitely was not very clued into these sort of things and i only found out after watching it that it was reservoir dogs so like i was barely paying attention to what actually was happening on on the actual screen but i do have a strong memory of seeing it for the first time in that sort of group but the first time i was aware of him as an actor uh, is, is something a little different. It's from a Tales from the Crypt episode called Forever Ambergris, where, um, which stars Roger Daltrey, the lead singer of The Who, and Steve Buscemi. And uh, at the time, I was a massive fan of that band, The Who. So when I saw that Roger Daltrey was in this episode, I was like, I got to check this out. And uh, the funny thing, of course, is I was watching it. They 
at the time, I think they had some sort of weird syndication thing going on here in Canada. Uh, so the only way I was able to see it was in an edited for television version, which had all the violence <laughs> removed from it, which I could tell you, uh, I like Tales from the Crypt a lot, but a lot of the appeal of it is the fact that there's a significant amount of violence in it. Uh, in an edited form, it's not so much fun. But yeah, so I mean, it's funny because there is this period like post Pulp Fiction or maybe right around that time and in the intervening like four or five years where it seemed like Steve Buscemi was everywhere. Well, because, I mean, think about his touchstones. Tarantino, Coen Brothers, Adam Sandler. He might he basically ruled the 90s. That's right. Like, That's true. Like, and then, of course, you add on to that, like I said, Airheads. You add on to that, like, uh, I say Coen Brothers, you know, Fargo, sure, but Big Lebowski. You know what I mean? Like, I just think, I don't want to say luck, like, he made decisions, you know, like those. Well, were... Remember, he was also he's also in Con Air and Armageddon. I mean, the two big blockbuster movies of the night. Yeah. So but I even think like I think because of the impact of specific decisions, uh, you know, that he's making that that's putting him in some of those bigger films. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. And it continues on. I mean, uh, uh, cult movies like Ghost World were probably not a small part of it either. You know what I mean? Sure. But yeah, like uh, uh I also it's also worth mentioning that the 90s was I don't want to say it's that different than now but one of the things that sort of set it apart for me was that there were certain kinds of uh, character actors that could become minor celebrities in a way because of how much all of a sudden weird stuff was cool again. You know, it kind of felt like in the 80s, like there was lots of interesting, weird stuff in the 80s. But the mass culture was like that stuff is weird and dumb, you know, as you can mm-hmm. tell by like every 80s urban film, punks are bad guys. <laughs> like That's the whole po- is that anyone who looks different is part of a gang and they're going to hurt you. And then in the 90s, it was like, or they're the leads in every movie. Oh, OK, <laughs> cool. You know, and so I think in that environment, it's easy for someone like Steve Buscemi, who is willing to stand out in popular roles, but is actually a good actor, uh, could really shine, you know. But I mean, but, but as long as he's tied to literally three of the most defining filmmakers of his entire age, sure. those three being Quentin Tarantino, the Coen brothers and Michael Bay. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Liam, uh, we're going to take our break and talk about Trees Lounge, which is Steve Buscemi's first feature directorial effort in just a minute. But I want to talk about both of our experience with this movie uh, previous to watching it for this podcast first. Now, I uh, mentioned to you right before we started recording that I had probably, I very likely had seen this when it came out on video back in 1996 or 1997 um, and watched it at the time, but I had no memory at all of it. I, at the time, I was like really into Steve Buscemi as an actor, so the fact that he directed this would have been something I would have been aware of, and the, um, the cast, which is a very interesting, good cast, would have been something I would have been looking forward to, but it, it didn't stick with me, and I haven't watched it in the intervening like 20 years, but you had watched it a number of times before. Oh, yeah, I, uh, it... It's it stuck with me as one of the first indie films of a specific kind that I got into. I mean, I think in retrospect, I was more exposed to independent film than I thought. But this was one of those movies where I knew it was something no one knew about. I knew that Steve Buscemi was in it and had directed it. And I had a feeling uh, that this was part of a world of which Pulp Fiction was like the surface of. Like that was my feeling 
going into the 90s, even though Pulp Fiction was such a huge cultural moment, I had a mm-hmm. sense at the time that it pointed towards other things. And right. I was at that moment, you know, I graduated high school in 97. And in the years post high school, especially um, a few years later, like uh, uh, just um, after college, I was really exploring film. And so Trees Lounge, I don't think I saw it actually in 96 or 90. I think I saw it probably like 99, 2000. But it was one sure. of those things that I like saw it out at the video. Like, oh, there's Steve Buscemi. Oh, he directed this. Oh, we should see it. And it had an effect on me because um, with a few with a few exceptions, um, A Boy and His Dog or um, a couple other things. I, I, I mostly grew up films, action films a few independent films here and there, art films here and there, but mostly not this sort of meandering melancholy film. And it, it made a big impression on me. And I think for a while I wanted this kind of filmmaking in my life. And I think it's still a flavor that I very much enjoy. I wouldn't say it's my main diet, you know, like if, Mm -hmm. if we're talking about music, you know, black exploitation brought a certain kind of like soul music into my life. I don't know that I've got out and filled out my catalog with it, but it is something sure. that, I, that I searched out in the same way. I haven't seen every sad drunk man movie that that, me, <laughs> that, that meanders like like a, you know, whatever. I, I, I don't even know what to compare this to, actually. I don't even know that I know enough to compare it to anything. But um, but it is something that I like. It's like a flavor I very much enjoy. Well, with that said, Liam, I think we're going to take our first break. When we come back, you and I, we're going to talk about 1996's Trees Lounge and the Steve Buscemi content within. We'll be back right after this. What is wrong with him? One bourbon, one scotch, and one bill. One bourbon, one scotch, and one bill. Trying to corrupt my daughter or what? Oh, If I win, I get to take you home. If you win, you go home with me. What kind of deal is that, huh? Uh, no, that, that don't make sense it's to me. It's a good deal. It's a good deal for me. Tommy is an unemployed mechanic who spends most of his time in a bar, Trees Lounge, in a small blue-collar town. He seems to always be thinking, if only X, then I could stop drinking. It's Trees Lounge from the year 1996. As we mentioned before, uh, written and directed by Steve Buscemi, with a really interesting, diverse cast, a lot of character actors on display here, and a lot of familiar faces as well, including a very young uh, Chloe Sevigny. Uh, Samuel L. Jackson shows up briefly in the movie, uh, memorably. Kevin Corrigan is here, uh, an actor I really love. Anthony LaPaglia. I mean, a really, a really a, a wonderful, diverse group Seymour of people. Castle. Seymour uh, Cassell, I think it's pronounced. Is it Cassell? Uh, I think so. Uh, it, yes. Right. He, he, I, Whatever. Guy I recognize from a million things. <laughs> well, I mean, yeah, lots of familiar faces on display, but this is a movie centered on and focused upon 
the uh, character of Tommy, played by Steve Buscemi. And we'll talk about his performance in just a little bit. But uh, first, I just want to get your general thoughts on this movie, Liam. This is uh, one that you had seen semi-recently, but uh, did it hold up to your expectations on this revisit? Yeah, I think it definitely did. I think, um, you know, I'm. It's it's a movie... I don't even know how people would respond to this movie now because yeah, right? <laughs> it has it has some untoward themes mm. uh, in which Tommy makes some poor decisions about a younger girl. Uh, and I don't know if now that would be seen as too gross or masculine or whatever. But, you know, I also think the movie does a pretty solid job of making it clear that Tommy is our protagonist and that this is in a sense, a kind of tragedy. And so yes. um, no part of me feels like it's trying to justify like, nah, it'd be cool if he got with a 17 year old. <laughs> like, I don't think that's where the movie's at at all. Um, for me, I, I already was aware this was the plot. So uh, yeah, it, it, it still holds up. I still think that it's, um, it's an interesting story. It is a film that is very much it couldn't exist outside of Long Island. It is so Long Island. It's like almost oppressively Long Island. This movie. <laughs> it's like a, a, if it were more rosy eyed, I'd say it was a love letter to Long Island, but it feels more like an email to Long Island. You know, like, hey, I see you there. I know you. I don't know that I'm going to say much good about you, but here we go. <laughs> I, I want to go back to what you were just talking about because I think that's a really interesting point that you were making. And it's something uh, – look, the, if you're listening to a podcast about Steve Buscemi, you, you know that I'm not talking about you right now. But there is a certain kind of audience in 2020 who maybe are only consuming Hollywood films, let's say, sure. who would have difficulty watching a film where a character that is extremely flawed – and that we are not necessarily supposed to have sympathy or love for is making all of these terrible decisions. Uh, I think that there's a certain kind of audience who would just because this person is the lead and just because he's played by someone that we like and maybe even the character we like at times when he does things that are terrible, that we're supposed to be like, it's OK, that we're sympathetic with him. But in this movie, we're asked to have complicated feelings about this very complicated person. And I don't know if every person watching this would necessarily appreciate that this character, that that the movie is not uh, supporting the decisions that he's making. Well, it doesn't make sense if it does. Like, no, of course. The, there are, in fact, multiple moments where the, I think, are supposed to be funny. Like, I, this isn't a comedy, I don't think. But there are Maybe moments a dark that are, comedy. Maybe, but it, well, it, then that's just pushing my point forward, forward that there are moments that are meant to be funny that if we're meant to think the decision he's making is sympathetic or understandable, <laughs> that, uh, that they're not funny, that it's just the movie that things happen in. You know what I mean? Like it's it's part of what moves the narrative forward is watching Tommy do stuff and going, oh, God, Tom, no, Tommy. Right, oh. right, exactly. Uh, but I do think, I mean, I do think the, the character overall is sympathetic in that um, I think he's a person who used to be a pretty good person. And I think that uh, the film is um, uncompromising about the effect that his drinking has on his life. Like the, if there is a villain in the film, 
it is Tommy's drinking problem, you know, <laughs> um, and, and and not just him. The way it affects others, and uh, it's interesting because I wouldn't go so far as to say that it's a sober film. Like I don't think the suggestion here is that alcohol is an evil from mm-hmm. which one cannot escape. Right. But it is a very sort of like um, empathetic look at folks for whom alcohol is not just a thing that they occasionally consume or not even a small part of their life or, or an integral part. Of, it is their life. Like these people are not just alcoholics. Their life is that they're, you know what I mean? Like yeah, it's like absolutely. the next step. And it's, it's like not, it's not a cartoonish presentation of alcoholism. No, either, right? not at Where all, it's just yeah. like th- this person is an alcoholic and now their life is complete trash. This is more about a slow decline. You know, really right. the most heartbreaking moment in this movie is near the very end where Tommy goes to see, his ex-girlfriend who has just given birth, and he sees a vision in his mind of how his life could have gone a different direction or maybe could still go in this direction, but uh, but it didn't. It didn't go in that way. And when she, he talks about himself in the past, it's not in a positive way, but as he says to her, he's like, now I'm even worse. And he, and he feels like if he just does this one thing, he can get his life back on track, but that's not how lives work right it's it's about you know it's about shoving uh um or or twisting a ship slowly over a period of time but maybe he's too far gone and then you have that final moment of the movie proper where he's just sitting and staring into the camera after just discovering that you know the the this kind of older barfly who who stays at this bar that he just kind of stopped functioning all of a sudden. And he you can tell he's kind of having a look at his own future or, or the potential of his own future. And that actually leads to my next question for you, Liam, which is that at those final moments of this movie, is he having an epiphany that could change his behavior? Do you think that there's potential for that in this character? I don't... So this is just my take. Sure. If people want to disagree, that's fine. I don't think the movie particularly cares. Hmm. I, I I don't think it matters to the narrative whether, you know what I mean? Like, I don't know uh, if you remember that movie, uh, Martha, Marcy, May, Marlene. Mm, you remember that of course. Movie? I went to a screening of that film where the director was there for Q&A afterwards. And uh, one of the questions for the director at the end was, you know, uh, the point where this thing happens and then it went dark. And the director said, yeah, that's. The end of the you mean the last shot of the movie? It's, it's, yeah, yeah, the last shot of the movie. The director says, "Yeah, yeah, I, I remember. Of course, I remember." And the audience member goes, "What happens immediately after that?" <laughs> and so, for me, I, I don't. I make I tell that story all the time because I think it's so funny. But, but I, it's but very I, representative of the type of Q and A questions that we have both encountered. But I think there are times when I am more sympathetic to that question in the sense mm-hmm. of like. Yeah, I get it. There's more story here, but this is where this story has to end. I think for this film, it really doesn't matter in a way because um, I don't think even if it, this is a moment for Tommy, um, the, the what the film makes pretty clear about Tommy is that Tommy makes a series of bad decisions. Right. Uh, but also that um, he also doesn't have a lot of luck either, right? Like he, he it's the combo of him – not catching a break and also being ill, uh, ill mannered. You know what I mean? Like <laughs> him, him not really knowing the right thing to do at the right time. That sort of starts to move the movie into a very sad joke. It feels like a long, sad joke 
that a cousin tells you at a funeral that you're just <laughs> like, oh man, that's crazy that happened to, to, to Tommy. You know what I mean? Like, and so, uh, in other words, I do think there's a hint that he could have insight, but let's say he has insight. There's no guarantee he's going to change. Right. And insight and, might only last so long. Right. And, if, and, and if maybe anything, this is an insight that he's had a dozen times before and then just falls away, you know, after the next drink. Well, and I'm 100%. I don't know that the film pushes this too hard, but I'm 100% of the mindset that like people end up in this place because of other things. Like, sure. Of course. Something else is broken, you know? And so, um, it could be that his sudden insight that he's literally in the seat of the older dude. Um, I already forgot his name. Um, and is in a sense, like taking his mantle that could just fuel more drinking. Like that is, this is part of the problem with uh, uh, any addiction, right? The sudden realization of the severity of your addiction could lead to further addiction because mm-hmm. you just think, well, this is who I am. I might as well just give up or, or this is just another thing that's happened to me or this is, you know, I made this decision and so now I have to pay the price by going further into the hole, whatever it is. Right. Yeah, your insight could, could make you recognize how far down you are, which just leads to depression, which could lead to right. – yeah, absolutely. But I think it's also telling in the film. I mean, I think Tommy has a sense he's got to improve a lot of things. He's got to work. He's got to do this, that, the other, you know – um, there aren't a lot of moments when Tommy thinks maybe I'm drinking too much. You know what I mean? <laughs> like people are constantly telling him, but he doesn't seem too concerned about it. So and in fact, uh, his drinking is sometimes presented as comedic, but when you think right. about it on a larger scale, th- there's something a lot more tragic going on. Specifically, there's a part where he's, he's ordering a drink and the bartender offers him $10 if he can walk out the door without drinking it. And you know what he does is he grabs a drink drinks it and takes the ten dollars and the people aside from the bartender in that bar think it's kind of funny and charming and all that sort of thing but but when you see it in the in the scope of this movie and in the context of it it's that's a really you know he really can't walk out that door without having that drink oh 100 percent. and and um one of the things i think is telling about the movie in a way is how rarely we see him drunk. If you really think about it, mm-hmm. he's always drinking. He's only occasionally drunk, right. which is a sign that he is not in a great place. Actually, if yeah. he was drunk more, it might represent that he wasn't constantly consuming as much alcohol as he is. So, um, yeah, I, 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 in other words, I don't think the movie is the, the, in, is too concerned with, uh, resolving Tommy for us, that Tommy is a case study in tragedy that is both melancholy and humorous, and it goes back and forth between the two. Uh, though, though I find actually more of it humorous than maybe other people do. <laughs> there is a parallel story that goes on in this movie uh, featuring uh, a character called Mike, played by Mark Boone Jr., um, and he, he is a man who's had a little bit more success, I guess you could call it success in life, than... Tommy's character in that he has a business that seems to be somewhat successful. He has a wife and a child. Basically, he has the things that Tommy thinks could turn his life around, but he also seems to be uh, slowly uh, uh, losing everything. His wife and child, they walk out on him. His employees, I don't know if they necessarily respect him, and he's basically spending all of his days at Tree's Lounge getting drunk, and uh, he's a very unappealing character. What do you think that storyline is supposed to represent? Is it just supposed to represent the idea that th- there is no kind of X factor for 
uh, for a an addiction like this, or perhaps everyone's situation is unique? Um, I'm not sure actually, because my my thought about it was like, how does this compare to Tommy's story? Sure. I mean, it certainly it certainly builds out the world, and there's very much a suggestion that um, moving to Long Island was a mistake. Which, in case anyone's <laughs> considering it, moving to Long Island is always a mistake. <laughs> Um, so I'll just go ahead and name that reality for everyone. But uh, might as well drive off a big section of our listeners right on the first episode. <laughs> Look, I'm any, big in Long any, Island, is what I'm saying. I'm saying if anyone of our listeners is living in a city right now and thinking I should move to Long Island, let me go ahead and say that unless <laughs> your building is literally on fire, where you're at is is a better option. Well, fair enough. Um, no, but I—I I, I mean, I, I'm saying that jokingly, but I'm also not right. He's made a big life change. It's unclear that his wife was ever on board for this life change. He just kind of sure. made it, mm-hmm. and he seems invested in these images of success, but he's not actually invested in his own life. Right. I do think that aspect of the story actually could have been developed a little bit more if it was a little bit of a longer movie. I actually, would like a little more of Mike, even though he's kind of unpleasant, you know? I, I mean, he's really unpleasant, though, right? And the movie mm-hmm. specifically makes him very unpleasant. But even isn't the that moments... that make him the opposite of Tommy? Like, Tommy is a... Tommy is a... Uh, Tommy is a, a, a scoundrel, but he's he's mostly charming, right? We see him be mostly charming with occasional bursts of embarrassing anger and cowardice. Whereas Mike, I don't know that sober Mike is much more likable than... Drunk Mike, <laughs> right. you know what I mean. Like Mike, just is never gonna vibe with the world. I, I don't think. Um, but also, I, I also think that it just sort of builds out the world a little bit. Like I, I don't know that it's essential for Tommy's story, but it kind of adds that layer of other things going on for that sort of scene. You know, there's a part in this movie that I, I want to talk to you specifically about because you've seen it a few more times than I, and I just curious about your take on it. There's a part where Mike gives Tommy a ride home and they're driving in a car together and they're chatting. And this is kind of funny because this, this is representative of some of the relationships in this movie where these are two people who spend a lot of time together who don't necessarily like each other, that they just have the common kind of uh, the common element of the fact that they drink a lot in the same place, but they're, he's driving him home and they're having a talk. And this is where Tommy reveals basically how he got fired from his job. He stole $1,500, went to Atlantic city and lost it. And when he tells this story, Mike stops the car and basically makes him get out. Is is the is it the, the, there's a surface level, level interpretation here that it's because Mike has a business and probably hates the idea of employees taking advantage of him, but is there anything else that you get out of that particular sequence? Does Mike have these this other kind of code of what is and isn't appropriate at that time or maybe he just hasn't hit that wall yet? I don't think either one of these gentlemen see themselves as the fucking losers they are. Like it's fact, funny because I, as soon as as soon as he kicks uh, Steve Buscemi out, he calls him a fucking loser. Yeah, no, he th- th- this story is an essential. I mean, and I don't know that the movie disagrees. Like I think the movie is like the bar has brought these people together, but these are all very different people. And you know, um, sort of what you were suggesting before. Uh, I, I, I used the term imploding to some extent for Steve Buscemi's character um, earlier on. But I he, again, I don't know that he ever really has it that great in the first place. Like he, he's sort of on the, the verge anyway. What's interesting about the Mike character is that Mike is really blowing his fucking life up. Like he yeah. 
you know, uh, he's moved to a bigger house because he has money because he runs a business. He's got a kid. He's got this wife. And I think in a way he is very specifically choosing not those things. And part of his drinking is fueled by his life. It's fueled by his stability. It's fueled by his Rockwell-esque possibility. Whereas Steve Buscemi, even when he's in the relationship, I don't think he's not a cad in some ways. Like right. I think, I think um, there's a sense in which he thinks that stuff could redeem him. And if there is any sort of theme for Mike for the rest of the story, it's just the – and this is probably what is intended. Mike is proof that he's wrong. That, like, he could very easily get married and have a child and still be out there drinking his brains out and doing coke in the bathroom. You know what I mean? Right. That that Mike is proof that, like, the flaw is not in your scenario per se. But it, it's also, you know, it's I think part of what makes Mike a little bit, for me, unlikable. Uh, he's, I mean, not totally unlikable, but, you know, he's choosing to blow up a situation that's pretty good. Whereas, you know... Uh, I don't know the Steve Buscemi. He, he, he takes the money. I think it's pretty clear he takes the money after his eight-year girlfriend has left him for his boss. Right, right. That it's part of the spiral. Right. Th- this this incident. Though right. he he also isn't willing to take any responsibility uh, for it because when he talks about it, it's very much like, oh, I had the intention of giving it back, and then I somehow lost the money at Atlantic City. I mean, there there isn't much, uh, and that's kind of a. a a consistent element of his character too. Yeah. Unwilling to take responsibility for the mistakes that he's made. Though <laughs> I I think there is a awareness that when he does have his makeout session with a 17-year-old that that he realizes that he screwed up and that it has it has had consequences, particularly when he sees her leave and she's cold to him and uh <laughs> and sees the impending doom regarding Daniel Baldwin in this movie. Sure, 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 but I think that there are multiple moments for him here not to be a coward. You know what I mean? For right, him, of course. For him to actually sort of show more compassion and be the adult. And she's the one who has to take on all the burden of the situation. Right. And it's not clear that uh, – it, it, it seems pretty clear to me that as the adult, he should be the – I mean, in reality, she's the one who's made a bad decision in thinking that he could be someone she could – kiss and it would be okay like he's right. he's the disaster not not her you know so yeah uh, you're, you know that's a really interesting point because there's a, a moment you know the next day where she phones him and he has an opportunity to be a stand-up guy to take responsibility to apologize and to possibly maybe over time make this right again and he completely flakes out on it and that's where she loses all kind of interest in him as a person because he's coward he's a he's a coward and and the when given i mean yes it was it would have been a hard decision to make but it was the right decision to make and he's not making it well and i think it really owns that he's treating this like any sort of embarrassing hookup like yes that's not i mean you it's embarrassing and he did make out with her but this is someone who is not only too young for you but is almost a relative because her aunt is your ex so like <laughs> This is this is as awkward as it could be, and it's up to you to be the adult in this situation. You know, it, it, in a way, the movie could have actually taken an angle where it's kind of funny how awkward he is, and it's it's interesting to me that I think that scene is actually painful and not funny yeah. at all. It's very much a an excruciating scene. 
they very specifically made her 17 as well, right? Just right. to make sure that, like, that we all know when watching this, what is happening is wrong, right? And look, it would have been wrong if she was 18 too, but but at least that, that would have been <laughs> legally somehow right. But I mean, in the course of this movie, the, the this is there's no question about he has done a fucked up thing here, uh, which is kind of but but it's the sort of hmm. fucked up thing that's really clear. He does this because he's needy. He does yes. this because he doesn't have boundaries, because he's a big ball of needy drunkenness. It's not like he's just fiending for some 17-year-old tale. Exactly. And in fact, it, it's not even clear that this was something on his mind until it became an option, you know? Right, right, right. Now, uh, I want to talk to you about some of the other performances in this movie. Are there any supporting actors? It's, it's, this is very much Steve Buscemi's show, uh, and the only other person who gets kind of significant screen time is Mark Boone Jr. as Mike. But uh, there's a lot of people who kind of pop in and out of this movie. Did anyone impress you? Anything stick out? Well, I mean, uh, you, I mean, Mark Boone Jr. is great. I think he's really good. Uh, Chloe... He's such a unrepentant slob, and I love that as a quality in an actor, someone who's just yeah. not worried at all about looking like total trash on film. Uh, I really like again. Chloe Sevigny is good in in this film. Um, I love Carol Kane, and anything she does is of gold, as far as I'm concerned. Um, and I like the brief scene with uh, Debbie Mazar. Um, I thought was was really well done. Um, yeah, I mean, I not I don't. There's no one who I thought was particularly not good in the film. Um, and I really enjoyed some of the performances a lot. The the stuff at the funeral was really really good. Yes, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, uh, I, I mean, I guess if there's a weak link is uh, Anthony Lapaglia as Rob is the is the friend, right? The the with his ex. Yeah, yeah, he's the boss. He's the guy. Yeah, who yeah, runs yeah, the, yeah, yeah, yeah. He is not the strongest performer, I think, um, in some ways. But I like how I like how they presented this relationship that he has with Tommy's ex girlfriend. Uh, in that. Right. Like, like they have a playful relationship. He seems like he's maybe a little angry, but he's not. Like to her, they seem like they do get along together, and that he is much better for her. And even when you see that um, there's a part where his ex girlfriend is like watching an old uh, a video of them at a family holiday, where she's still with Steve Buscemi's character at that point, but also Anthony Lupagli's character is there. And there's these kind, of, there's kind of hints of these connections occurring uh, within within that that frame. But there's a wistfulness to that and a kind of a sadness to what she's watching. But in terms of the relationship she has, she doesn't seem unhappy. And I think that's really clear because when Tommy goes to see her at the hospital, I mean, he keeps kind of making these indications, you know, if we just got back together, that sort of thing. But she's not having it at all. Right? This is like this is not who I am or what my life is anymore. I mean, some of the early stuff with uh, with uh, Rob suggests that there's some cracks there's some cracks in there but i think maybe that... she likes playing with those cracks you know what i mean where it, it's yeah because honestly the idea of my my ex hanging outside my current boyfriend's workplace and just staring into it all day i mean that's a creeper move right totally no i get that but i do think that um i do think that um uh it, it it's not that they're relationship is perfect i but the movie is really clear a lot of the other relationships we see are particularly bad yeah like his parents yeah (laughs) out of control and uh even some of the other people we see at the at the funeral or even like um uh uh 
Debbie's parents are not great. You know what I mean? So mm. I think in that way, while it's clear that, I mean, I think what the movie try, is trying to suggest is that Teresa still has feelings for Tommy, but still having feelings for Tommy is not the same as leaving Rob. And I think that's the issue here is that um, to some extent, Tommy is coasting on goodwill everywhere he goes, even though he annoys the crap out of people. Yeah, absolutely. He's coasting on goodwill and it's not enough. You have to actually be someone that people can rely on or interact with, you know? So one of the things I've read in interviews is that Steve Buscemi, when he, his idea of making this movie and writing this movie is that he saw it as almost like a parallel path that his life could have taken if he wasn't successful in acting, if he didn't find that success fairly early on in his career, that this is how he saw his own life going. So the, it's kind of strange. It's it's not that it's uh, autobiographical. It's kind of like a potential <laughs> biography of where his life could have gone. You can kind of see how he might have a little bit of sympathy or a lot of sympathy maybe for the decisions that Tommy is making because Tommy is basically playing a fictionalized version of himself. Yeah, I think it's a, but I think that's where he's very sympathetic towards Tommy, but he's also mean to Tommy, right? Like the film wants to make sure you see how pathetic Tommy is, you know? And, 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 and there's a certain amount of like pain there. Like, uh, the scene, the scene with um, uh, Debbie Mazar, where she's just too drunk, and he's just laying in the bench trying to have some sort of connection yeah. with her. Mm-hmm. That, on one hand, I get it. Like, I get his feeling of like, why does nothing work out for me? But on the other hand, you know it. As soon as he's talking to her at the bar, you're like, hey, there's no way this is gonna work. There's right. just no way he's gonna screw it up. And letting her get so drunk. But I, so my theory about that whole interaction is that that's related to insecurity, right? That he needs her to be as drunk as possible because then he can trust that she's actually going to want to be with him. Right. And she needs to be as drunk as possible because as revealed later on, she's at least a mom and possibly yeah. married to somebody else. Mm-hmm. So like, uh, yeah, I, it just it just seems like um, they're both fueled by this deep need and insecurity that of course means it's not going to work and it's literally doesn't even work for them to hook up. So let's move on to the performance of C. Buscemi in this movie. Uh, at, as someone pretty familiar with his kind of mid nineties, uh, I was going to say heyday, but that's not very fair just to the kind of his consistency as an actor, but in terms of maybe his most vis- visible time uh, between uh, Reservoir Dogs kind of into Fargo and and beyond in the 1990s. Um, this is kind of an off-model character for him. You know, he's not a kind of weaselly, uh, uh, fast-talking jerk like he can be in a lot of his other movies. Uh, he's not supposed to be terrifying or intimidating necessarily. He's m- supposed to be kind of like a bumbling charmer who, as you we've already gone over, just keeps making terrible decisions, but has a kind of kind of a likable charisma to him. Uh, all the same, what do you think of him in this role, um, particularly with the the knowledge that he, he this is a character that is in some way based on himself? I mean, I think it's really good. I think that um, he and and this might just be this might not be just the performance; it might be the writing of it as well. But I think the character has layers that don't betray the character. It's not the character isn't needlessly complex, but he's complicated in ways. 
that help the story, you know. Um, but there's still plenty of Buscemi-ness here. If people like him yelling, he's yelling. <laughs> if you like him being kind of a goofy, you know, whatever, he, that's there. If you like him uh, pleading and whining in a high-pitched tone, there's there's a great scene with that of him climbing a batting cage, you know. Uh, so So all that stuff is there. Um, and, but I think you get a little bit more of him, just how he interacts. And get, it feels like a more lived in character in a way. And mm. I just find something really appealing about that. It's, it's, uh, and it's unfair to be like, well, the one role that he directed himself and wrote for himself is his most him role. But for me as a sort of a interested, but somewhat casual Buscemi fan, this is my favorite Steve Buscemi role right now. It just oh. really is. Uh, because I just think there's so much of him in it. And it is, again, not that I like what he's doing or I like the decisions he's making, but God, there's something so fucking familiar about this guy to me that I just find it really interesting. David Chase, the creator of The Sopranos, uh, cites Trees Lounge as one of his inspirations for the creation of that series. And later he would uh, both have... Uh, Steve Buscemi is an actor on that show and have him direct several episodes of it. Now, I, it's, it's a big blind spot for me, but I've actually never watched The Sopranos. Jesus uh, fuck I, Hey, I'll get to it eventually. Guess what? There's a lot of stuff to watch. <laughs> but uh, do you see that? I, I, I'm guessing that you're a little more familiar with the series. Do you see that inspiration on The Sopranos? Uh... I mean, a couple of actors, but uh, well, of course, but uh, no, I, I don't know. I guess in the sense that this is a part of America, like uh, when, when you think of a certain kind of Northeast Italian, uh, <laughs> you, you think of uh, you think of a urban Scorsese film. You know what I mean? Uh, you don't get to see Jersey and Long Island. You know what I mean? Like. The thing about The Sopranos that we all talk about is how it's about crime and capitalism and masculinity and, you know, patriarchy in general and uh, and those sorts of things. And sometimes we don't talk about um, how The Sopranos is at a base level about New Jersey. Hmm. And the same way that this film is not about Long Island, but Long Island is this movie doesn't work in quite the same way in a different place, I don't think. I mean, it's interesting to think about uh, the way that the, especially because these are both places I've actually never been to. I've never been to New Jersey. I've never been to Long Island. So the aspect of Trees Lounge that is, you know, very Long Island, quote unquote, there might be something I'm really missing there. I mean, I recognize some of the archetypes of the people who who live in these places, but it might not be something that I'm picking up on to the level that well, I probably I mean, should. It, if you think it through, right? Like, how many places as quaint enough? to have those kind of homes and an ice cream truck, would it be that easy to get Coke in a bar bathroom? <laughs> well, I suppose that's... Well, I mean, in 2020, that's probably pretty much any place, but I, I do get your uh, your. I there. don't know that that's true, Doug. I think it's... I think you're assuming this is... Well, and I mean, at this time, too, like, there's a certain... Uh, what, what the film has is uh, a reminder that these are, for the most part, middle to lower middle class folks sure who have a tendency to yell and get in fights and cause <laughs> trouble you know what i mean like there's a certain there's a certain like 
yeah, Mike, I mean, just say it out loud and you feel like you're doing a bad skit about New York. Yeah, my cousin Tommy got fired as a mechanic and now he spends all his days <laughs> in a bar that he lives over top of. Like, it's it, the, the thing, it feels like a joke about Italian-Americans. You know, like, the whole f- reality of it is there's a certain sort of thing to it that is, like, familiar and interesting. I mean, again, I'm making fun in a way because I have friends who are from Long Island and I bust on them a little bit. But, like, you only have to tweak this a little bit to make it about Philadelphia. Or, in this case, it wouldn't <laughs> be Philadelphia. It would be one of the towns right outside of Philadelphia. You know what I mean? Like, right. lo- Long Island is not New York City. But it's also doesn't exist without New. You know what I mean? There's something about it is like it has this thing to it. It's it's kind of hard to explain. But um, for me, that that sort of reality that he's in feels uh, very much of a place um, and a specific part of that place. Uh, I, I'm also being unfair. Like Long Island is a very diverse place, and there are beautiful places that rich people spend millions of of dollars to hang out in. But those places are not walking distance from Trees Lounge. (laughs) Well, I think we're we're coming to the end of our conversation here, Liam. But I think I I do wonder, would you recommend Trees Lounge to... I mean, it's kind of a funny uh, question to ask because this is a kind of movie that if I was 12 and saw it, I wouldn't have loved it. And then if I saw it when I was 18, I would have loved it. I think it takes a little bit of maturity to appreciate some of what's going on here. But is this a movie that you would recommend to friends? I would actually. And I, and I have, I I do think it has to be someone who likes, you know, I guess you could call this a character study. I guess you could call this um, a dark comedy. Like it's the, 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 you know, I have certain friends for whom this is the sort of movie in which nothing happens. And so, you know, they need some sort of dramatic thing to have occurred for them to feel like they've watched a narrative. Uh, But I have other friends who I think would like vibe on this. They'd vibe with the way that the way that the film flows represents what it's trying to tell you about Tommy's life. And I think that matters. And I think it's an interesting film. And, you know, it's not hilarious, but there are parts that make me laugh. And, uh, you know, I certainly would recommend it to anyone who loves Steve Buscemi because it's it's a really great Steve Buscemi performance that he had a lot of hand in, in crafting both as the uh, as the director and, and I think co-writer, right? I mean, it's it's very confidently directed as well. I mean, the very fact that we... I mean, he did surround himself with ringers, no doubt about it. But, you know, the the fact that everyone gives a solid performance kind of all the way up through the cast, maybe with the... <laughs> to your mind, with the exclusion of uh, Anthony LaPaglia. He's but, not I mean, bad. It, I just don't think he's as solid as some of the other performers. I think, I think that's a very fair statement. He's a little more Hollywood-looking and acting than some of the other people in this. But I think that this movie has real insight. Uh, and I think it has that insight because this is the sort of, and even outside of the fact that Steve Buscemi might see himself or this as a potentially where his life could have, have went, but he obviously knows people who are like all of these characters that surround Tommy in this movie. And this is a world that he has lived in and experienced. And I think that makes a, a huge difference. But I mean, what this also shows is that uh, Steve Buscemi as a performer, as an actor, that... Uh, Having worked with so many talented directors before this, it obviously rubbed off on him pretty significantly. But this is not a Quentin Tarantino movie, and this is not a Coen Brothers movie. This is a movie that's 
very kind of specific, maybe kind of specific to that era of the the mid to late 1990s in some ways, simply because this is a movie that might not even be able to be made now. But it is a movie that uh, is, I think, quintessentially from the mind and life of C. Buscemi. I agree. It's it's a it's a fascinating way to sort of start talking about this actor and about his career. Which is why, Liam, I'm excited to tell you that on the next episode of this podcast, How Do You Do Fellow Kids, I have a movie chosen for us, Liam. And I don't know if this is one that you've seen before. This is coming as a surprise. Liam is being shocked by my uh, decision-making here. He doesn't know what we're going to talk about next. Are you excited, Liam? I'm fucking shocked. Well, I'll tell you what. We're going to go back, not to the very beginning, but pretty close. We're going back to the year 1986, Liam. And this is another movie featuring Steve Buscemi and Mark Boone Jr. They actually have been in a number of films together outside of uh, Trees Lounge. Obviously a long-term relationship. This is the movie Film House Fever from the year 1986. Now, are you familiar with this movie, Liam? I've never even heard of it. So Filmhouse Fever is actually, and this might irritate you when, when I tell you what this is, this is a compilation of exploitation and horror movie trailers that is hosted and has intertitle-like sequences starring Steve Buscemi. I don't love this, but I'm but I'll, you don't but love I'll this try as to choice? go in, I'll try to go in with an open mind. I wanted to go back to the early days of Steve Buscemi's career. Uh, when I think of his early days, this is what I think of first. Is there a particular reason that you have qualms with this or, or uh, reservations? I just don't like that format, but uh, but that doesn't mean the thing isn't good. <laughs> well, I, I want to ask you more about that. Why don't you like the format? You don't like trailer compilations? No, not particularly. Interesting. Do you not like movie trailers generally? No, I like movie trailers. Huh. You just don't like watching them back to back? Oh, so this is like a literal movie trailer compilation. How do you mean? I thought it was one of those movies where they're at, all the trailers are just skits. No, no, no. This is this is actual exploitation movie trailers and uh, clips from movies. Basically, never, El- never, never mind. I love this actually. This is okay. Great. Yeah, okay. I was thought I picked this because I thought you'd be excited about it. That's why I'm pushing a little further. No, this is Steve Buscemi and Mark Boone Jr. and they're basically watching clips and trailers for movies and kind of uh, they're they're Elvira-ing them a little bit and chatting about them and and poking fun at them a little bit. I'm into it. All right. Well, I'm glad, Liam. I'm glad that you've come over to my side regarding Well, I mean, fil- any decision you make is going to be the wrong decision. So. <laughs> well, on the next episode of How Do You Do, Fellow Kids, the cinema of Steve Buscemi, we will be talking about Film House Fever from the year 1986. Liam, this is another podcast in the, uh, uh, the umbrella title of Cinema Smorgasbord. If people want to check out more of the podcasts, where can they do so? Uh, they can go to cinepunks.com or they can go to cinemasmorgasbord.com. Uh, they can also follow us on Twitter at uh, cinemasmorg. Is that right? Yeah, S M O R G, cinemasmorg. Uh, or cinepunks at uh, cinepunks, that's P U N X. Uh, and then they can also follow me on Twitter if they want to be punished at uh, Liam Rules, R U L Z. You can also follow me on Twitter. I'm there as Doug underscore Tilly. That's T-I-L-L 
E Y and if you have a favorite, hey, you know what? You got to hit it just to make sure people are, are aware of how that's spelled. If you have a favorite Steve Buscemi movie, why don't you uh, drop us a line over on Twitter, either to our individual accounts or ideally over at the Cinema Smorg Smorgasborg account, uh, and uh, tell us what your favorite Steve Buscemi movie is. Hey, maybe we'll feature it in an upcoming episode. We'll have to, Liam, because we're going to watch every movie Steve Buscemi's ever been in. I'm pretty excited about it. <laughs> We're excited now, folks. Let's see if we hate each other a year down the line. But, <laughs> but for Liam, <laughs> this is Doug Tilly saying, good night, everybody. May all your Steve Buscemi dreams come true. Say good night, Liam. Good night. <laughs> what? That was so stupid. <laughs>